What will become of Edom is violent. For the sake of Zion, Hashem won't be silent. In our troubles, He is troubled. In the end of days, our joy will be doubled. So this week's Parsha is Parsha Nitzavim, and it's finally the last of the Shiva Denachemta, the seventh and final um, seven Haftorahs of comfort, which means that it's been seven weeks from Tisha B'Av, and it also means that the um, that that uh, Rosh Hashanah is on the doorstep, um, and this Haftorah begins by saying "Sos Asis Bashem," um, which means that we will rejoice intensely with Hashem. It's interesting. Sos and Asis are coming from the same word. Sos being being to rejoice. Um, so basically, uh, the simple understanding is when a word is repeated twice, it means that it's like an extra emphasis that um, there is going to be intense joy, not just joy, but intense joy. But another way to learn this, uh, another commentary said that, you know, the, the Shavad and consistently uh, throughout the all seven of the of these Haftorahs, it talks extensively about sort of this double punishment and this double reward. Um, and this, this Haftorah also mentions this, this sort of double rejoicing of sos asis. What is the two types of rejoicing? One of the commentaries say, one is referring to olam hazeh, this world. One is referring to olam haba, the next world. That basically when you follow the, the Torah, that you might think you only get benefits for it in the next world, but the reality is you actually get benefits, maybe even greater benefits for it in this world, in the world that we're living in right now. And that's why sos asis, perhaps there's joy in this world and there's also joy in the next world um, with Hashem. Then uh, the Haftorah continues by saying, my soul will exalt with God for he has dressed me in salvation um, with a robe of tzedakah. Um, So it's interesting here. It's really referring to clothes, not as something physically that you wear, but rather that basically in the end of days, sort of our good deeds, our midot, um, things like tzedakah, giving charity, um, that that's what will clothe us. That really, you know, um, what you know, what what we'll wear in the end of days won't be something physical, physical cloth. Rather, it will be sort of the good deeds that we did, like giving tzedakah. We'll wear that as our robe. Um, then, the haftorah continues by saying, like a groom and a bride that graces her jewelry. Um, it's interesting that basically, uh, you know, our soul will exalt with God in a similar way that. A bride graces jewelry, and it, at one of the commentaries say this is a tremendous compliment to this bride that it's mentioning. That instead of the jewelry making the bride beautiful, it's actually the other way around. The bride is so beautiful that she makes the jewelry that she's wearing even you know more beautiful than it is um, normally. Then the Aftora continues, just as the earth grows and gardens sprout up, so too um, righteousness and praise. Uh, will sprout up, um, and uh, it it so so basically the point there is that you know just like in the natural world that the earth grows, gardens grow, plants grow, in the end of days righteousness and praise. Not only will we wear sadaka, but those things will also be sort of sprouting up from the ground, so to speak. Um, and the Aftura continues for the sake of Zion. 
lo echesha, that God will not be silent. Um, and then for the sake of Yerushalayim, God will not be still um, because uh, righteousness burns like a flame and salvation blazes uh, like a torch. And um, moving on, so it says other nations will see uh, the Jewish people's righteousness and honor and will be called by a new name that Hashem will pronounce. What is that new name? Um, the new name is that will be called a crown of splendor and a terra deferet, a crown of splendor that's in the hand of God. Uh, that's going to be our new name, that basically we're going to be this beautiful crown. And not only will we be a beautiful crown, but we'll be situated uh, in the hand of God. Um, and the Haftorah, can, and, and that's our new name. And the Haftorah continues by saying we no longer will be called um, Azuva, the forsaken one. Rather, we'll be called... Um, uh, and and our, our land will not will no longer be called desolate. Instead, will be called the Chafzeba. Um, my desire is in her. Basically, uh, that that God desires the Jewish people in the end of days, and the land instead of be, being called desolate will now be called inhabited. So the Torah continues by saying, as a young man marries a woman, so will your so will your children settle in Israel, um, like a groom rejoices over his bride. So you can sort of see the imagery there that God will, God is the groom, so to speak, that rejoices over his bride, um, uh, the, you know, the, the Jewish people. And then it says, upon your walls, uh, Yerushalayim, I have guards all day and night. They won't be silent. And the point here is that basically, famously, the walls of Jerusalem were knocked down at the, you know, at the destruction of the temples. And um, basically, the, the angels cannot be silent uh, when those walls are knocked down. And they won't be silent until God finally, um, you know, rebuilds uh, Jerusalem and the Jewish people to who they once were. And the angels won't be silent until God makes Jerusalem a source, a source of praise. God swears by his right hand and powerful arm. Um, and so what's interesting here is, uh, this one commentary say this is referring to, first of all, the right hand is the stronger hand. So God swears by his stronger hand and the powerful arm. This is referring to the fact the commentaries say that God wears to fill in on his arm, whatever that means. And basically, even though it's the weaker arm that you wear to fill in on, that when you wear to fill in on your weaker arm, it strengthens it almost to become the powerful arm. And that's why God he swears by his right hand and even by his powerful arm that he's wearing to fill in on is also strong. Um, then it says your armies will no longer eat food. Um, sorry, your enemies will no longer um, eat your food or drink your wine. Rather, those that labor over it will eat, um, will, will eat in my courtyard and will praise Hashem. And the point here is that basically, you know, um, that throughout Jewish history, you've sort of seen our enemies basically take all of what's ours. You know, in the Holocaust, um, famously, a lot of the Nazis took Jewish artwork in houses, for example, in real estate. Um, and it's saying in the end of days, uh, basically, the things that the Jewish people labored, labored over, worked over, that we'll be able to enjoy those, but not just enjoy them anywhere. Rather, we're going to enjoy them in none other than God's holy courtyard. Um, then the Haftorah continues by saying, Ivru, um, Ivru Ivri um, Basharim, 
that basically this is go through, go through the gates, pave the roads, clear the way, raise a banner um, for the people, and tell the daughter of Zion that Moshiach has come and his reward is with him. That basically this is saying the Moshiach um, in the end of days when it comes, that the... Um, that there will be this push to go through the gates and pave roads, clear ways, raise banners, and tell the Jewish people, the daughter of Zion, that the Moshiach has come and is carrying his reward. Then it says the Jewish people will be called an Amakadosh, um, the, 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 you know, the holy people, the, uh, and, and um, will be redeemed by God, and Yerushalayim will be called not forsaken. And then the Aftor continues with sort of a gruesome section. It says, who is coming from Edom? Um, and Edom is famously the descendants of Esav. And also part of Edom, uh, the commentaries say, were also the Romans. Um, so it says, who's coming from Edom with soil clothes? Um, it's none other than Hashem. Hashem is coming from Edom. Basically, after defeating Edom, Hashem comes um, and joins the Jewish people. It seems like Hashem is not in Israel at that moment, and perhaps that's because the Jewish people aren't in Israel. So it's, the point is, is that Hashem basically is wherever the Jewish people are, and if Hashem isn't in, in Israel, then he'll be outside of Israel, and not until the Jewish people come back with the third bit of Mikdash will Hashem really be back there, I guess. Um, but it talks here that uh, he's coming back from Edom, that God, that God himself comes back basically after beating Edom with soiled clothes. Um, and Hashem girds himself with, with strength um, uh, who, and it, who, who speaks with tzedakah, who speaks with, with, uh, with righteousness and is able to save. And then um, again, it, it questions why, it, basically the Haftorah asks God, why are you red like you walked on a wine vat? Um, and why a wine vat? It's because, um, first of all, wine is red. It looks like blood. Um, but a secondary meaning is because a wine press, um, it's true, it crushes grapes. It, it absolutely destroys the grapes. But that's for a good reason because it extracts the valuable wine um, that basically the only way that you can get wine is by, is by crushing grapes. Um, and then it says Hashem will... Uh, tread on the wine press and will basically stomp on the nation of Edom in his anger, trample it with wrath, and basically the blood of Edom will be spurted out onto my garments, onto God's garments, and dirty them. Um, and there will be this Yom Nakam, this day of vengeance in God's heart um, in the year of redemption. And um, Hashem basically looks, but doesn't find a helper or a supporter to support the Jewish people. So God himself, uh, the Haftorah says, God himself, when he sees no helper or supporter, he, God himself will basically step on the nation of Edom, on, on, on the Jewish people's enemies in anger, and they, the people will become drunk with God's wrath. And their blood, the blood of Edom, um, will be thrown to the ground. Um, then it says that all of this violence that we just read about, the blood of Edom thrown to the ground and, you know, being stomped on in anger like a wine press, that somehow the Haftorah calls this a chazte Hashem, a chesed, a kindness of God, and that the Jewish people will sing praises for God um, for all of the abundant chesed, all the abundant goodness that God has given to us 
um, the house of Israel. And it's interesting here that, you know, it, it seems like totally counterintuitive. How is it possible that God's angry vengeance against Edom is somehow a chesed? And I guess the answer is that sometimes chesed, kindness, it doesn't always come in the form of peace. It normally does. But there are certain instances, you know, Pinchas comes to mind, um, etc. There, there are very select, you know, and, and certain instances where actually violence is, is sort of the real chesed. Um, and I guess that's what's going on here, that all of this sort of anger that's being unleashed against Edom, ultimately, like that wine press, is basically crushing out all of the, you know, from the crushing the grapes, but it's getting all the good parts. And that's a chesed from Hashem, the Haftorah says. And then God says, Ami, my people, um, your children are not false, and uh, I will become your savior, savior. And then there's an interesting line here. It says, Kol tsaratem lotsar. Um, which has a few different interpretations depending on how you read the word low. So low with an aleph means not or no, but low with a vav means him. And there's uh, a, a bit of a disagreement about which one is the correct way to read it here. Kol tsaratem lo tsar. So I'll go through both alternatives. Um, the Basically, the general um, opinion is that low is referring to him, meaning that in all their trouble, in all the Jewish people's trouble, God, he was troubled. And the point here is that basically when the Jewish people are feeling sorry, when the Jewish people are feeling, um, you know, are, are, are feeling uh, uh, bad things, punishments, pain, then so too God feels that pain with us. Um, but there's another interesting way to read it. Like I said, it could be read as instead of to him, it rather could be read as low, not and that way you would read it is kultzaratem, basically all of the tsaurus that the Jewish people have gone through, all the bad things the Jewish people have gone through, um, are not tsar, are not for the purpose of inflicting pain. So the point is that basically, yes, God sends us, sends us through all these terrible things, but none of those are for the purpose of of just to punish us. Rather, it's a it's a it's a tikkun, it's a way to cleanse us. And then the after it continues by saying, um, with love and compassion, God will redeem us and he, God will lift and bore the Jewish people all the days of the world. Kol yame olam. So with that, I'll recap the Haftorah. The Haftorah, again, as I mentioned, it's finally the last of the Shivan Nechemta, the seven Haftorahs of comfort, starting at Tisha B'Av and finally ending uh, with Rosh Hashanah, which is soon approaching. Approaching. Then the Haftorah actually begins by saying, Sos Asis Bashem, rejoice intensely with Hashem. I mentioned Sos Asis is sort of a double language, and we've read a lot of this double language, a double punishment, a double reward. Here it's talking about a double rejoicing. And one of the commentaries say it's rejoicing in this world and it's rejoicing in the next world with Hashem. Then it says, um, my soul will exalt with God for he has dressed me in salvation with a robe of tzedakah. And I said, it's not talking here, you know, about clothing that's made out of fabric. Rather, basically, it's that our good deeds in the end of days will be wearing our tzedakah, will be wearing sort of our charity uh, on our sleeves, so to speak. Then the Aftorah continues like a groom and a bride that graces jewelry. And the point here is that a bride, um, not not that the jewelry makes the bride beautiful, but the other way around, that the bride is so beautiful that she makes the jewelry that she's wearing beautiful. Um, and that'll be like the Jewish people in the land of Israel. Then it says, just as the earth grows and the gardens sprout, so too righteousness and praise will sprout for all nations. 
And the point there is that, you know, just as sort of the natural world works, we wear physical clothing and we grow physical crops. In the end of days, we'll be wearing our tzedakah. And similarly, tzedakah will be growing out from the ground. Um, you know, praise and righteousness will be growing from the ground. Then the Aftorah continues, for the sake of Zion, lo echesha, that God will not be silent. And for the sake of Yerushalayim, God will not be still. And righteousness burns like a torch and salvation blazes like a flame. Um, and the other nations um, will see righteousness, uh, will, will see the Jewish people's righteousness in our honor. And the Jewish people will be called by a new name that Hashem will pronounce. What is that name? It's that the crown of splendor, the Atera Tiferet, um, will be in the hand of God. So basically, the Jewish people are now going to be, will be called in the end of days, the crown of splendor that is in no other place other than the hand of God. And then we, the Jewish people, will no longer be called the Azuva, the Forsaken One, and our land will no longer be called desolate. Rather, we'll be called the Chatzeba. My desire is in her. My God's desire is in the Jewish people. And the land will no longer be called desolate, but will be called inhabited. And then the Aftar says, Just as a young man marries a woman, so will your children settle in Israel, like a groom that rejoices over his bride. So here God is the, is the groom that is basically rejoicing and celebrating over the bride, the Jewish people, that come back to the land of Israel. Then it says, Upon your walls, your shalim, I have guards all day and night. They won't be silent. And the angels won't be silent until God makes Jerusalem a source of praise. And this is basically talking about, you know, famously, the walls of Jerusalem um, were penetrated during the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash. And, um, but in the end of days, that, that basically then the angels are not silent until Jerusalem is finally brought back to a source of praise. Then it says, God swears by his right hand and powerful arm, um, and the point here is that the right hand is the stronger one and the powerful arm, the commentaries say, is the hand that the arm that wears tefillin, even though you wear tefillin on the weaker arm, sort of in that moment when you're wearing the tefillin, it actually becomes a stronger arm. And God, whatever it means that God wears tefillin, that that's why it's on his powerful arm. Then it says your enemies will no longer eat your food or drink your wine. And I spoke about how it's like, you know, the Nazis, how they took the Jewish people's houses and, and, um, and fine art, etc., etc. Um, it says that in the end of days, though, those that labor over it will eat and it will eat in the courtyard of Hashem and praise God. And the point here is that basically um, sort of the fruits of we'll be able to eat the fruits of our labor and in no other place than the courtyard of God. Then it says, Ivru, Ivru, Basharim. Go, go through the gates, pave the roads, clear the way, raise a banner of the people, tell the daughter of Zion that the Moshiach has come and his reward is with him. That basically in the end of days, there's going to be this pronouncement to pave the road, clear the way, raise banners and tell the daughters of Zion that the Savior, the Moshiach has come with his reward. The Jewish people will be called an Amakadosh, the, the holy nation, holy people, and will be redeemed by God, and Jerusalem will not will no longer be called forsaken. Then there's this violent part of the Haftorah that says, um, who is coming from Edom? Edom, of course, being the descendants of Esau and the Roman people. And um, and basically it's saying God is coming from Edom after with soiled clothes, basically after beating Edom. And Hashem girds himself with strength who speaks tzedakah, again, there's all this visual imagery of basically, you know, tzedakah meaning righteousness. Nonetheless, there's wearing tzedakah, 
there tzedakah is going to be growing out of the ground. There's going to be words of tzedakah, um, all this, all this imagery. Um, and, uh, then again, there's this question, um, why is Hashem red? Like you walked on a, a wine vat and, um, it says, yes, Hashem actually, uh, basically will tread on Edom like it's a wine press. And why a wine press? First of all, wine is red like blood, but also because wine, you have to crush grapes in order to extract the valuable wine that's within the grapes. And so too, Hashem basically will tread, will sort of destroy the nation of Edom to extract the good qualities of it. Um, then it says, God will tread on Edom in anger, trample them in wrath. Their, the blood of Edom will be spurted out uh, onto God's garments and dirty them. And the Yom Nakam, the day of vengeance, will be in, in God's heart. Um, the year of redemption has come. Hashem looks but there's no helper for the Jewish people there's, and there's no supporter. So God himself will step up to the plate and basically stomp on the nation of Edom in anger and they'll become drunk with God's wrath and God is going to basically throw their blood onto the ground. Very violent and, and sort of terrible imagery. Nonetheless, the Aftorah says this is a chaste Hashem. This is a, a kindness of God, similar to sort of how Pinchas seemingly did something very violent by killing those two people. Nonetheless, um, he gets a brisi shalom. He gets a covenant of peace. And similarly here, they, from the sort of, even though it seems very violent that God destroys Edom, that somehow is viewed as actually a kindness from God. Um, and there will be a singing of praises um, for, all, you know, for, for all the good and abundant chesed um, that, that God does for us. And God says, Ami, my people, um, the children, you know, my children are not false and I've come, become, I've come to be your savior. Then the interesting line, Kol Tzaratem Lo Tsar. I mentioned how Lo could either be Lo with an Aleph, meaning not, or Lo with a Vav, meaning him. And the most interpreters say, most um, commentaries say it's him, meaning in all their trouble, he was troubled meaning God himself was troubled with the troubles of the Jewish people, that when the Jewish people are feeling trouble, God feels trouble. It also could be read as low with a with an aleph, not, meaning that basically all of the punishments that the Jewish people have gone through are not really punishments. Or basically the point is that all the punishments that the Jewish people have gone through, the point of them is not just to punish the Jewish people. Rather, it's a tikkun. Rather, it's a, um, a way to heal the Jewish people. Um, then it says, you know, the angel saves the Jewish people with love and with compassion. God's, God redeems us. He lifted us and bears us all the days of the world. Kol yame olam. And with that, I will read the poem. What will become of Edom is violent. For the sake of Zion, Hashem won't be silent. In our troubles, he is troubled. In the end of days, our joy will be doubled. And with that, l'chaim l'chaim. And uh, this has been the Holaf Torah, and uh, have a nice Rosh Hashanah and a sweet new year. Chana cried out in despair that being childless was wildly unfair. Hashem answered Chana's prayer, and Shmuel was dedicated to God and did not cut his hair. So, um, this is the Haftorah for the first day of Rosh Hashanah. And really one of the most famous Haftorahs um, that we read all year long, and uh, the commentaries say it really is one of the most best suited um, for any 
sort of for any day um, or any Parsha that is read throughout the year. And it's the epic story of Chana and the birth of her child Shmuel. So Rosh Hashanah is also called Yom HaZikaron, the Day of Remembrance. Why is it called that? Because there were many great uh, matriarchs, the Jewish people, that were barren, and then they were remembered by God on Rosh Hashanah, and um, they they had they had children. So uh, in the Torah portion that we read for Rosh Hashanah, we read about how Sarah, how she was remembered at ninety years old, and eventually had the child had her child Yitzchak, and similarly Rachel was also remembered on Rosh Hashanah and had her child, and Hannah, who we read about in this week's Torah, was remembered. Um, and had her child Shmuel. And why were they remembered? They were remembered because of their their prayer to God. Um, and we'll read about that prayer in this week's Torah. So um, the Talmud asks an interesting question. The Talmud in Rosh Hashanah asks the question: Why do we read about these individual stories, Chana, Rachel, um, you know, Sarah? Uh, why do we read about their individual stories about how they were remembered and not about how the entire Jewish people were remembered? The answer given is that um, that basically uh, Sarah was remembered. Um, the, the, so Sarah was remembered and that was derived. Sarah was remembered on Rosh Hashanah. And how do we know that she was remembered on Rosh Hashanah? That was derived, the Gemara says, from the fact that Chana was remembered on Rosh Hashanah. How do we know Chana was remembered on Rosh Hashanah? That was derived from the fact that Rachel was, um, that that uh, that Rachel um, also was remembered on Rosh Hashanah. Another reason given is that really it is talking about the entire Jewish people because um, Yitzchak, you know, it was was a was a. Um, was a forefather of the Jewish people, and similarly, Shmuel was also a great person, um, a, a very, very great person in Jewish history. Uh, so, getting to the actual story. So, Elkanah, who is Chana's husband, um, he's called an Ish Echad, um, which means either one man, or but it also maybe means a special man. And it's a special man because he went to Shiloh for every festival, um, you know, and, and Shiloh was obviously existed before the Beit HaMikdash. Um, so he went to Shiloh to celebrate every festival, which was very rare in his day because a lot of the people uh, abandoned this practice of going to the festivals. Um, one of the reasons given for why they abandoned this practice is because the the Kohanim were corrupt and they would, they would take advantage of the people that came for the festivals. Nonetheless, Elkanah went for every festival. Um, and Rashi explains he even chose different routes uh, to go every single time in order to basically meet new people and convince them they should also go um, to celebrate uh, the festivals. So uh, Elkanah was a descendant of Korach from the family of Kahas, and he's called an Ephrati. He was maybe called an Ephrati because um, the descendants of Korach um, were considered distinguished. Ephrati means distinguished. Um, so moving on. So the Haftorah says that Elkanah, he had two different wives. The first one was named Chana, and the second one was named Penina. It's interesting. The Haftorah says um, by Chana, the first one, it says uh, Echad, the first one. 
However, by the second one, uh, by Benina, it says ha shenit. So why does it say ha, the second one, and, and by echad, it just says echad, not ha echad. Um, and the reason given is because, basically, Elkanah, he only planned to have one wife, namely Hannah. But then the commentaries say that when Hannah was barren, did not have any children for 10 years, Hannah, similarly to Sarah, um, told her husband to marry uh, a different wife and have children with her. So um, after 10 years, Hannah told, um, t- told uh, Elkanah, the, you know, her husband, to marry the second wife, uh, Penina. So why does it, again, back to that question, why does it say Ha-Shenit? Is because um, basically, really, the, the, the first wife, Echad, uh, Hannah, was the only one that he planned on marrying. And it says the second one only because that was sort of Bidyevet. That was sort of a, not the ideal situation that he married uh, the second wife, uh, Penina. So anyways, the Haftorah says that um, Penina had... Um, had uh, Benina had children. However, Hannah was was childless. Um, and then the Avtora says that Alkana, um, she went. Sorry, Al- Alkana, the husband, uh, he went every year to to bow down and to bring offerings to Hashem in Shiloh, and um, and in, in Shiloh where the two sons of Eli, the Kohen Gadol, uh, were staying. Then he brought uh, offerings. So the Avtora says he brought offerings for Penina for. For the wife that had children, and for you know her sons and 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 her daughters, but for Hannah, the Avtor says that he gave that that uh, that that uh, Elkanah brought a a special a, a more like chashiv a more important offering. Another interpretation says a double offering because he loved her uh, more, and it says that uh, then they can the Avtor continues with Penina would make fun of Hannah. Uh, for not having children, and to the point that Hannah would cry and and not eat anymore. Bava Basra says the the Gemara and Bava Basra says um, explains basically how Penina would make fun of Hannah. Penina would would mock Hannah and say, uh, "Did you forget to buy an outfit for your child, knowing full well that that Hannah didn't have a child?" And and she would just say this basically to to rub it in. Um, however, it's interesting the comment the Chazal. Um, Chazal say that that uh, Penina actually was a good person, um, even though it seems like she's a terrible person by making fun of Hannah for not having children. Nonetheless, um, she was a good person. Uh, one of the commentaries says it's because it says her name was Shem Hannah. Her name was Hannah, um, and that means that it's a good person. However, if it says Hannah was her name, that means that she, she would be a bad person. But in this case, it says Shem Hannah that she was a good person. Um, why was she a good person? It's because he would, she would make fun of her simply so Hannah would um, would pray uh, to to have a child, and by praying to have a child, she ultimately would have a child. So really, Penina um, was you know making fun of Hannah, sort of even though it seemed harsh, she was making fun of Hannah, um, Shem Shemayim, for for the right purposes. Now the Avtora continues by saying Alkana would comfort. Um, Hannah by saying, why are you crying? Am I not better to you than 10 kids? So what does this mean? The commentaries say that um, very often a person wants a child so that they can guarantee that in old age, uh, that child will take care of them. And in death, that child will, will uh, bury them. 
Um, however, so, so, so what Halkana is, what, what, what her husband is, is, is saying is, am I not better to you than 10 children? Basically, I'll take care of you in old age and I'll bury you, uh, when you die. And so why would you, you know, you don't need children because I'm here to take care of you. However, he fundamentally misunderstood why Hana wanted children, as we'll see. So Hana, um, uh, Hana ate and after being comforted by her husband, Hana ate and drank. Um, and it's interesting when it says that she drank, it actually, it, it says uh, the, 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 um, Haftorah, the, the word the, the Haftorah uses is pronounced Chateau, that he drank, Chateau, he drank, um, referring to basically Elkanah, the husband was the one that drank, not, not Hana. Um, and however, though, she had goblets with her, which may have confused, as we'll see later in the story, may have confused Ellie to think that, um, to think that, that Hana actually was, uh, a, a drunk. So anyway, so it says that in Shiloh, Ellie, the Kohen Gadol, was sitting there and Hana was, was very bitter. And, um, and she prayed Al Hashem, which could be interpreted as to Hashem. However, the commentaries say that this is really, she prayed against Hashem. Basically, she accused God of not being fair to her. Um, and she prayed in constant tears. And the Aftorah says that because she prayed in constant tears, that the gates, um, you know, the, 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 the gates of um, Hashem's gates never close when a person cries. Um, it's interesting what the commentaries explain. What exactly, uh, Chazal explained, what exactly was she crying about? What, what were the uh, parameters of her crying? And um, so it's interesting. One of the thing, one of the complaints that she had uh, against God, um, and and sort of she was basically accusing God. Um, and one of the things she says is that uh, she she was basically threatening God to uh, seclude herself with another man, and therefore uh, sort of be forced to drink the soto waters. And the soto waters famously either if you're if a person is was guilty if a woman was guilty, um, uh, then her stomach would extend out and she would die this terrible death along with the man that she was uh you know, um, uh, along with the man that she she did the adultery with. Um, however, if she's innocent, the Torah says that she would actually merit to have more children than ever. Um, she, she would merit to be even more fruitful than, than she had previously. So Hannah threatened, that basically threatened God, saying, I'll make you, uh, you know, I'll, I'll test your Torah. I'll test uh, when I drink your soda waters um, and I'll be innocent. I'll seclude myself, and, uh, but I won't actually capitulate to the sin and I'll be innocent. Then God basically will force God's hand into being, um, you know, into having, in, into having uh, children. Uh, because that's what the Torah says, that if you drink the soda waters and you're innocent, you'll have more children than ever. So one of the commentaries ex- explain here a beautiful message that um, that uh, what is it about this? What is it about the soda waters that, that that has a connection with Rosh Hashanah? And the message was, is that, you know, there throughout many different cultures, they have this they, they have a sort of uh, um, a trial to see, like, are you telling the truth? Like, for example, you have to put your hand in boiling hot water. And uh, if you, you know, are telling the truth, then you are willing to put your hand in the boiling hot water. If you're not, though, you're going to confess before you have to put your hand in the boiling hot water. However, the commentaries say 
This commentary says the soda water is completely different. The soda water, you're just drinking normal water. A person normally doesn't hurt themselves by drinking normal water. And really, instead of thinking of it as sort of a punishment, like dipping your hand in the boiling water to see if, you know, you're innocent or not, that's really a punishment. That's inherently dangerous. Drinking water is not inherently dangerous. And it's really only a chesed from Hashem, kindness of God, that God is willing to basically sort of get this union back together, the, the union of the marriage union back together by proving the woman's innocence. So it's not really about did she do it or did she not do it? Rather, it's about a way for God to, um, to, to, uh, um, it's, it's a way for God to bring the, the, the marriage back together. The marriage might've been sort of on the ropes because the man didn't trust the woman. However, when she drinks the water and she's innocent, then, uh, they'll, they'll, she'll trust him and, or he'll trust her. And what does that mean? practically for Rosh Hashanah, it's that basically God is extremely kind. God is sort of there to um, bring unions back together. Um, and, and and that's what Chana was threatening. Chana was, was threatening that this, this you know, I'll, I'll drink the soda waters and then you'll have to basically be so kind to me that you'll offer me even more children than I would have otherwise. Um, okay, so moving back to the actual words of the Aftorah. Um, so um, she, she prayed Chana um, Chana vowed that if God remembers her and gives her a child, she would make him a Nazir. She would not cut his hair, make him a Nazir, and dedicate him entirely to God all the days of his life. It's interesting. She also refers to God as Tzvaot, which means master of legions, um, basically like the, the ruler of armies. And what does this mean? Um, the Aftorah says that basically her prayer was that I'm a mother, um, you know, I'm, I'm a woman and she wanted to have, uh, you know, Chana was saying I should be able to have a child, um, to sort of fulfill my mission. Um, and, and that kind of prayer is to say like, you know, it's basically saying the master of legions, it's sort of telling, uh, the leader of the army, you know, I have this special skill, uh, give me the ability to, to, uh, give me the opportunity to use my skills. And that's what Chana was saying that she's a woman and she wanted the ability to have a child. Um, and uh, so anyways, so Hannah prays Al-Liba, like on her heart, from her heart, and only her lips moved, but not, she, she made no sound. And the commentaries interestingly say here that this is actually the model for how we pray, you know, in the Shemona Esrei. We move our lips, but we don't uh, speak out loud. And it's interesting that, you know, usually it's only men have the obligation uh, to, to um, at least to pray with a minion, but even generally just to, to pray the Shemona Esrei. And, um, and what's interesting, though, is that it's actually from a woman that we derive uh, why we should, you know, exactly how we should pray. And perhaps that's because one of the commentaries say it's because basically a woman is like sort of more in touch with exactly how to pray, the ins and outs of prayer. And that's why we use her model, Chana's model, um, of how men should pray. Um, then the, but, but however, when Ellie saw her mouth moving, but no words coming out, she thought that base, he, he thought that she was so drunk that she wasn't able to speak. And, um, and one of the, and, and Chazal say that basically the Urim Vitumim, these, the breastplate, the, the way to, to sort of, uh, determine a message, um, uh, the, the Kohen Gadol Ellie asks, you know, asked, asked the, the breastplate, um, 
is this a woman that's that's worthy? And the breastplate said that she was kosher. However, he confused the letters and thought that, that she was a shikar, meaning that she was a drunk. So rather than being kosher, um, he misinterpreted it and thought that she was a shikar and, 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 and a drunk. And so basically he accuses her of being a drunk. Um, he says, remove yourself from wine. Chana replies very strongly. She says, um, I have kashat ruach. I have an aggrieved spirit. I haven't drank any wine. Rather, I've poured my heart out to Hashem. And don't think that I'm a bat um, balial, uh, an aggrieved woman. Um, you know, don't think that I basically am, am, am a person that, that gets drunk and prays. Because the commentaries say if you're drunk and you pray, then it's like you're committing adultery. And we have a famous case of this where our own sons, one of the commentaries for why our own, for why two of our own sons died tragically is because they tried to, to pray while they were drunk. Um, so she's saying, don't accuse me of, of praying while I'm drunk. Rather, I'm, a, I'm an aggrieved woman and I simply want a child. And Ellie says, go in peace and the God of Israel will grant your request. Um, and the commentaries say this is not really a, um, a promise Rather, it's more of a blessing that God should grant her request. Um, why should God grant her request? Perhaps because she was shamed. She was shamed by uh, Ellie. By by you know, Ellie accused her of being a drunk, and because of that shame, she should have a child. Another reason is because of the tears that she cried um, to God that she should have a child. Then Hannah, she um, left and 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 ate. And she didn't have the same look on her face. Basically, she was happy after she got that message from Ellie that, that uh, the, the God of Israel will grant her request. Then she returned back to her home Ramah, in Ramah. And after a period of days, she conceived and gave birth. What does this mean? She conceived and gave birth. It sounds like she, gave, she conceived and gave birth at the same time. Rather, the commentaries say no. It's that her birth was as painless as conception. Then uh, the Torah continues by saying, she named this child Shmuel, and um, because she and, and it gives the reason she named him Shmuel because she asked him, uh, she asked for him from God, um, and Iltiv uh, means like it could either mean she asked she asked for him, but it also could mean um, she borrowed him. Basically, she only borrowed him from God. She didn't really. Um, she, 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 you know, she was just like renting him because ultimately he would go back, uh, to serve, uh, to, to serve in the temple as a Nazir. And, uh, you know, and, and it says once the child was weaned, he will serve God forever. Um, and, uh, and the, and, and eventually once the child was weaned, um, they brought the offerings to Shiloh and the, the child was brought as a Na'ar, still as a youth. And uh, they slaughtered a bull. They brought the, the, the young child to Eli. They brought Shmuel to Eli. And, um, and, and the woman said, Hannah said, uh, I'm the woman that prayed for a child and Hashem has granted my request. And I'm here to dedicate this child to Hashem. It's interesting that Shmuel himself, basically the child that this is written about, Shmuel himself is the, uh, is the one that wrote this story. Another thing to note, as I mentioned before, that you might have thought that that Alcana, the husband, incorrectly assumed that the reason she wanted children is to take care of her. Rather, we can see very clearly throughout the story that the real reason she wanted a child is simply to fulfill her mission, um, sort of her abilities as a woman to have a child. 
and she was content with not having any benefit from the child. She would dedicate him back to the temple. However, she just wanted to basically fulfill her mission in life. And once she fulfilled that mission of having a child, she was so content that she she didn't want the child to take care of her. She didn't want it for any ulterior you know motives. She just wanted the child to um, sort of fulfill her mission in life, which she felt was having a child. And once she had that child, she dedicated him back to God. So uh, Alcana misunderstood why she wanted a child. He thought she wanted a child for her own benefit. Really, she just wanted a child to sort of fulfill her mission uh, as she thought of it in life. Now, Hannah, she um, has this prayer at the end. She prays, my heart and pride will be raised by God, um, and my mouth is open about my enemies. And what does this mean, my mouth is open about my enemies? One of the commentaries say this is actually thanking Penina. Penina originally was an enemy, basically someone that would mock her for not having children. However, now when she has the child, she realizes, oh, the real reason why Penina um, mocked me is just so that I would pray to God. And then it says the name um, of God is as holy as Hashem. Um, none beside, there's there's not no one besides you. You uh, are like a rock. And why is she like a rock? Well, why sorry? Why is God like a rock? It's because the commentaries say that that um, that she basically said some terrible things about God. She said, you know. Uh, you're, you're mistreating me, uh, you should make me a sota, and you know you should make me you know secluded and and then I'll drink the sota waters and I'll force you to give me children. She sort of uh, she sort of you know basically put put uh, put God in between a rock and a hard place. Nonetheless, God didn't punish her even though he had even though God sort of had grounds to punish her and that's why she calls God a rock. And it says uh, she continues, don't be haughty, don't be a Balgaiva because God accounts for all your deeds. He's the God of thoughts. Um, and the bow of the mighty will be broken and the weak will become strong. The sated will search for bread. The hungry will no longer be hun- hungry. The barren will have kids. The, the, the um, women with many children will lose all of them. In fact, the commentaries say that um, this is referring to the fact that when Hannah had children, every time that Hannah had a child, then Penina, the one that accused, you know, that, that made fun of Hannah, she lost one of, tragically lost one of her own children. So that's what it's referring to. The barren will have kids. She herself was barren. And the many, namely Penina, um, who had many children, that she eventually would lose all of her children. And it says the poor would become rich, the destitute will become nobles. And the point of all of this is basically to say that things aren't as they seem. We might see someone that's very wealthy and we might see someone that's very poor. However, God sometimes see them, sees them in the reverse order. Then it says, may God raise um, the horn of the anointed one. And what is this horn referring to? The horn is referring to a horn of oil, sort of a small uh, can of oil that eventually King David would use um, to, appoint, to, to, to uh, you know, appoint himself as king. So um, that or that Shmuel would use to appoint uh, David as king. So to recap what I spoke about, so uh, Rosh Hashanah is called the Yom Hazikaron, the, the day of a remembrance. And the Torah, um, you know, in, in the Torah, we read about how Sarah was remembered at 90 years old and had Yitzchak. Similarly, Rachel was remembered and also Hannah um, was remembered with Shmuel. And I mentioned how about the Talmud Rosh Hashanah asks, why do we read about these individuals? were remembered. Why not the entire Jewish people? One of the reasons I gave was because um, 
Sarah had had Yitzchak, who really was the entire Jewish people, and Shmuel was also a great leader. Getting to the actual Haftorah, so the Haftorah is about the story of Hannah and how she had her child Shmuel, and none other than her own child Shmuel wrote this story. Um, so Elkanah, Hannah's husband, uh, who was called an Ish Echad, a special man, because he went to Shiloh for every festival, um, which was exceedingly rare in that time. Most people did not go to festivals, and Rashi even explains did not go to Shiloh for the festivals. Rashi explains that um, he would choose a different route every time to try to convince other new new people to come uh, with him to the festivals. And he was a descendant of Korach from the family of Kahas, called an Ephrati, a distinguished person, uh, because the descendants of Korach were especially distinguished. Then it says that um, she had that, that, that Elkanah had two wives. The first was Chana, the second was Penina. Um, and I mentioned that it says Echad by Chana, the, and it says Ha Sheni, the second one by Penina. Why the extra Ha? Why the extra the? It's because he only planned, Elkanah only planned to have Chana as his, as his only wife. However, after 10 years um, of having no children, um, Chana told, um, told her husband to marry Penina. Um, and so basically it says the second wife, cause she wasn't planning on, he wasn't planning on having the second wife. Um, and the Aftorah explains that Penina had children. However, Hannah was, was barren, was childless. Elkanah went every year from year to year to, to, to bow down and to bring offerings to Hashem in Shiloh. And that was where the two sons of Eli, the Kohen Gadol were, uh, Kohanim. And he brought offerings for Penina and for her sons and daughters. However, for Hannah, um, he gave a double portion because he loved her so much. And then it says that Penina made fun of Chana for not having children, um, to the point that Chana would even cry and not be able to eat because she was so depressed. The Gemara in Bava Batra explains that how did, how did she mock, uh, how did, how did Penina mock Chana? Penina would say, did you buy an outfit for your child, knowing full well that she didn't have any children? Um, and, it's interesting, though, the, uh, you know, it's interesting, Chazal say that she actually had a good intentions um, in making fun of Chana because this would ultimately lead her, lead Chana to pray and uh, to pray to God and ultimately have a child. Um, so then Elkanah, the husband, he would, he, he comforted Chana and said, why are you crying? Am I not better to you than 10 kids? And um, maybe he said this because a person normally wants children so that they could, you know, take care of them in old age and um, and and help them, you know, once they die, uh, bury them. However, Elkanah is saying, I'm better than 10 kids. I'll take care of you in old age. I'll arrange your, your funeral service. Um, and however, Elkanah misunderstood the reason for why she wanted children. She wanted children um, to fulfill her mission in life, um, as we read on later on. And, and she was willing to even give that child up, not have any benefit from him. Um, you know, she just wanted a child just for the sake of, of fulfilling her mission of having a child. Uh, and it wasn't for any personal benefit, which Elkanah misunderstood. So Hannah, she was comforted. She ate and, and um, drank. However, it actually uses the word chateau. He drank, namely her husband drank, not not her. Um, and But when she was in Shiloh, um, Eli, the Kohen Gadol, was sitting there, and he saw Hannah, that, who was, she was very bitter, and she prayed to Hashem in constant tears. And I said that gates of tears are never closed. How did she pray? I mentioned that interesting story that Chazal say 
she prayed by basically accusing God. She prayed Al Hashem against God. And one of the prayers that she said was basically a challenge. She, she said, I'll seclude myself and then be forced to drink the Sota waters. And when I drink the Sota waters, God promises that, uh, that, that I'll have children. Uh, you know, God promises anyone that drinks the Sota waters and is innocent will, will have children. Um, so she basically challenges God, I'll challenge your assumption that God, you know, I can't have children right now. So what I'll do is I'll seclude myself just so that I have to drink the soda waters and then I'm innocent and then I'll, I'll be able to have, uh, um, you know, children. And I mentioned that this is a main message on Rosh Hashanah. This whole idea of the soda waters is not to punish um, the woman. Rather, it's sort of a way to basically bring husband and wife close together, closer together, even though it seemed like that that marriage was sort of on the ropes, that there was mistrust. Nonetheless, she, the, the, um, the Sota waters bring sort of through an act of chesed from, from, from God, uh, an act of kindness brings the couple back together miraculously and they have more children than ever. And that's sort of a message on Rosh Hashanah that sort of fates can change. Um, even though you might think a marriage is on the ropes, so to speak, then you drink the Sota waters and all of a sudden things are better than, than they'd ever been before. Um, Chana vows that if God remembers her and gives her a child, she would make him a Nazir and dedicate the child to God. Chana prays Al-Liba um, from her heart, and she only uses her lips. Her lips are moving, but she makes no voice. And I mentioned that this is our framework for prayer. And one of the commentaries say it's interesting that we are, a woman is the model for prayer because um, you know women don't have the same obligations to prayer and praying with a minion. However, um, However, basically, the commentaries say that, that a woman is like so close to sort of, Chana is so close to sort of understanding exactly how to pray to God. That that's why we use her, um, that, that's why we use her model. Only our lips move during the Shemona Esrei, but we don't make uh, any, any sound. Eli, um, Eli, the Kohen Gadol, he thought that, um, he thought that Chana was a drunk. And why did, she, why did he think that he was a drunk? The commentaries say it's because the, the, he looked at the Orim Vitumim, these things that would give you sort of a, an indication about future events, and he misinterpreted what, what the Orim Vitumim said was kosher. However, he confused the letters and he read shikar, a drunk. Um, so instead of viewing her as kosher, uh, he viewed her as a drunk. And he says, remove the wine from you. And Chana replies, I'm not a, I, I have a kashat ruach, I have an aggrieved spirit, I haven't drank anything, rather I've poured my heart out to God to have a child. Don't think that I'm a bat balial, an aggrieved woman, um, and an aggrieved woman would be someone that would be drunk and pray, um, which is a, a very severe sin, uh, similar to idolatry. Perhaps that's why our own sons died, some of the commentaries say, because they were drunk, and they nonetheless tried to worship God. Um, don't think that I'm this drunk. Rather, I'm, I'm just an aggrieved woman wanting to have a child. And Eli realizes his mistake. He says, go in peace, and the God of Israel will grant your request. Um, and why was, will her request be granted? Perhaps it's because she was shamed um, by being accused of being a drunk. Also, she cried out in tears, uh, and that kind of expression, the gates of tears, you know, the, the, the gates are always open to tears. Chana left and ate, and she didn't have the same look on her face anymore because she was so happy now that uh, she got this, this blessing from, from Ellie that God will grant her her request to have a child. And um, she, they returned to Ramah after a period of days and, and conceived and gave birth. It sounds like 
conceived and gave birth sort of on the same day? How did that work? Rather, the commentaries say, no, her birth was as painless as conception. Then she named him Shmuel because she asked for, uh, because she asked um, for him from God. Uh, it's interesting. Shiltiv could mean to ask, but it also could mean to borrow. Basically, she was just sort of borrowing him in the short term to, to, to nurse him. And then once he was weaned, uh, she would give the child back to God. Once the child was weaned, then um, she would, you know, he would serve God forever. And, um, and once the child was weaned, they brought offerings to Shiloh. The child was a na'ar, was, was still even a youth. And nonetheless, she brought him and she slaughtered a bull. They brought the child to Eli. And he says, I, and she says, I'm the woman that prayed for a child and Hashem has granted my request and I'm dedicating this child to God. Um, you know, it's reminiscent of, this is reminiscent of the, the famous, the, the joke that a person says, you know, I'll go to Minion every single day um, if, if you know, you can just help me find a parking spot. Then a parking spot opens up and the guy says, oh, I found a parking spot. Thanks, God. I don't need your help anymore. Uh, you know, and, and obviously Hannah did not take this approach. Hannah said, if you give me a child, I'll dedicate you to God. And once God gave her that child, she actually followed through with it. Um, Hannah then goes into this prayer. She prays, my heart and pride um, are raised by Hashem. My mouth are my mouth is open wide about my enemies. And the point here is that basically she realizes all along that Penina actually was there in her best interest, even though it seemed like she was mean. Rather, she was doing it with Shem Shemayim. She was doing it for the right reasons. Um, and once she had a child, once Hannah had a child, she realized that Penina was actually there to help her. Then it says that none are as holy as Hashem. None are besides you. There's no rock like you. Don't be um, a haughty person uh, because God um, will account for all of your deeds. And God is the God of thoughts. Um, and then the Haftorah ends by saying, the bow of the mighty is broken. The weak will become strong. The sated will search for bread. The hungry um, will no longer be hungry. Uh, the barren people, the barren women will have children and the women with many children will lose all of them. And this actually happened. Hannah, every time that she had a child, um, one of Penina's children uh, who had many children died. Then it says the poor will become rich. The destitute will become nobles. Um, the, sorry, the destitute will, uh, yeah, will, will, will sit with nobles. May God raise the horn of the anointed one. Um, the, the, the horn of oil, this is referring to when David was appointed king, his horn of oil uh, was used to appoint him. And the, the point being here is that basically, uh, even though it seems like Hannah was, was barren, was, was distraught, had nothing on Rosh Hashanah, Rosh Hashanah gives us the tremendous ability for teshuva um, and to basically switch everything around, everything the, the way that nature normally is. She was barren. Everything was flipped on Rosh Hashanah um, and with the matriarchs in general, Sarah, Rachel, and, and Hannah were able to conceive, even though before that seemed impossible, Rosh Hashanah changed the structure of how that worked. To read my poem, Hannah cried out in despair that being childless was wildly unfair. Hashem answered Hannah's prayer, and Shmuel was dedicated to God and did not cut his hair. And with that, uh, The ten lost tribes may seem forlorn, but in reality Ephraim is Hashem's firstborn. For her missing children Rachel cries, but when the Jews return she'll dry her eyes.
So this is the Haftorah for the second day of Rosh Hashanah. It's interesting, Rosh Hashanah, um, even the second day of Rosh Hashanah is practiced uh, in Israel. So everywhere, um, even in Israel, they read this, this Haftorah. Um, so the Haftorah begins by um, Hashem speaking to the Jewish people and, and saying the Jewish people have survived the sword and have found chain, have found favor in the wilderness, and um, and Hashem will lead Israel to a place of tranquility. So, what is this sword that um, that the Haftorah speaks about? Um, the commentaries say this is talking about Egyptian slavery. That basically the Jewish people seem like they faced inevitable death uh, because the the baby boys were being thrown into the river. Um, and it seemed like if the if the Jews stayed in as slaves in in Egypt, that the entire Jewish um, population would be wiped out. And um, so, so it's the Jewish people survived that that test, and they found chayin, they found favor in the eyes of God when they were in the wilderness. Why do they find favor in the wilderness? It's because they set aside their rational fears and trusted in God that God would take care of them and, and give them manna give them food. Basically, they were going in, a, in, the, in the desert where there was no food, no water, um, no, you know, n- uh, no protection against the elements. Nonetheless, the Jewish people trusted in God that God would take care of them in the wilderness. Um, and, that, and they trusted in God that, they would lead, that he would lead the Jewish people to a place of tranquility. Then the Aftorah continues by, um, the, by that, uh, so the Jewish people respond and say, Merachok um, in the distant past. Normally, Merachok is talking about a physical distance, but here it's talking about more of a distance in time. In the distant past, uh, Hashem appeared to me. Um, what does this mean that Hashem, in the distant past Hashem appeared to me? It's talking about that um, Rashi explains that throughout Jewish history, we have relied on the forefathers um, to basically, in their merit, that we should be saved. Um, and this is what it's talking about in the distance, pa- in the distant past, in the time of the forefathers, um, in the time of the Avod, Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, um, we rely on their, on their um, sort of good deeds, on their connection with God, um, to save us in, to save us today. And you see that even throughout the Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur davening, that it can, you know, it constantly refers back that we should basically get, you know, still continue to live simply based on. What the Avot, what what Avram Yitzchak and Yaakov did uh, to protect us. Um, so moving on, so God, uh, God says, "I've loved you, Olam Avataych. I've loved you with eternal love, and um, and extended Chesed, extended kindness to you." And again, it's interesting. One of the commentaries talks about um, it says Olam Avotaych, which is translated as eternal love, um, Olam. Olam literally, though, means it normally refers to the world, the physical world. So how does the physical world come to mean eternal, especially because we believe the world didn't always exist? Um, so how does Olam come to mean eternal? Uh, interesting question there. Um, and then it says, I'll rebuild you um, into the um, Betulat, uh, I'll rebuild you Betulat Yisrael, uh, the, the maiden of Israel, and you will adorn yourselves with drums, and you will go and and dance. Um, so the the maiden of Israel, the Jewish people, will be rebuilt, 
and we'll have drums and dances into the land of Israel. Then it says that there will be vineyards that will be planted in the mountains of, of, of Shomron in, in Samaria. And um, the mountains of Samaria is where the 10 tribes lived, the 10 lost tribes that split off from the Jewish people, um, where they lived. They lived in Samaria. And not only will the Jews plant vineyards there, but the Torah says even they will redeem their vineyards. They'll basically pay the taxes of the Miser and the Shein and, and um you know, they'll, they'll pay their taxes of, of Miser and, and do all the other sort of agricultural um, mitzvot, you know, lekech, shivcha, peah, et cetera, et cetera. And, and not only, you know, will these 10 lost tribes uh, be once again fruitful, but they'll also be following the commandments. And it says the watchmen, the watchmen on the mountains of Samaria, on Mount Ephraim, will call out, Arise, let us go to Zion, to Hashem our God. And the commentaries say something remarkable here, that these watchmen that were on Mount Ephraim, Har Ephraim, that these people traditionally, they were, the, the 10 tribes set watchmen up there to make sure that none of, nobody from the 10 tribes would go to the Beit HaMikdash, would go into Jerusalem. And, um, and, and during the, during the Shalosh Regalim, Pesach, Shavuot, and Sukkot, um, the these watchmen would sit on this mountain and make sure that nobody from the ten tribes would go and serve God in the Beit Hamikdash. Rather, he, they forced them to serve God basically in uh, idol worshiping uh, centers and settle in centers of idol worship. And these watchmen would would find people sneaking away to serve um, to serve in the Beit Hamikdash and uh, would stop them. And it says in the end of days sort of in an ironic twist, the exact opposite will happen, that these same watchmen that are there to enforce idol worship will be there to enforce um, sending the people, sending those 10 lost tribes um, to Hashem um, and uh, sending up to Zion, up to Jerusalem uh, to serve God. Then uh, says Hashem, Ranu Yaakov, sing Yaakov with gladness um, and uh, the Jewish people will say, uh, Hashem, save your people, Yisrael. And then God replies, I will bring them back from the north and gather them from the ends of the earth. Um, the north is referring to Babel, to Babylonia. And the people of the north, they, um, you know, the, the, the Babylon had a very uh, epic his, Jewish history, the, the, the Talmud Bavli, the, 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 the Talmud that we learned so, so you know, intently was created um, in Babel. And, and it says that those people will return back to Jerusalem. And not only that, but even those people that are completely scattered, that have no connection to Judaism, um, those at the end of the earth will also be gathered. Then among them are the blind, the lame, the pregnant, the birthing. What this commentary say this is referring to, it's not literally referring to blind and, and lame people. Rather, it's talking about people that are blind and lame to sort of the existence uh, of God and the importance of the Torah, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, people that are sort of blind to that sight. Um, those people will return. And then it says the pregnant and birthing people, basically um, the babies that are born from from these pregnant women will will return to God. Then it says the Kahal Gadol, the great congregation, will return, um, will return. So then the Aptor continues, they will come weeping through prayer, I will bring them. So basically it's, it, this is maybe a connection to Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah is centered around prayer and it's through prayer that the Jewish people will be saved. 
It says that the um, God will guide us on streams of water on a straight path um, and so that they won't stumble. And it says, the commentaries say that water here is often referring to the Torah, that God will basically guide us through the streams of Torah, through the streams of water, but meaning through the streams of Torah, which is a straight path, the Yaf Torah says, and the Jewish people won't stumble if you follow that. Then it says, I've been a father to Israel, Ephraim is my Bechor, is my firstborn, um, and which is fascinating because Ephraim is referring to the ten lost tribes. And nonetheless, God says, these ten lost tribes are still special to me because they're my firstborn. Then it says the other nations will recognize God um, as the one that scattered his people, but it's now gathering them back in like a shepherd gathered gathers his sheep. So it says that the other nations at the times of the Mashiach will recognize that, um, yes, it's true, while God scattered you know, the Jewish people, in the end of days he'll gather them back in like a, like a shepherd gathers his flock. God redeems Yaakov from the stronger nations that basically Hashem will redeem us, the Jewish people, from what seems like stronger nations, and, um, and the Jewish people will come and sing in, in Sion, in Yerushalayim. Then it says that there will be bounty, um, including grain, wine, oil, sheep, and our soul will be like a watered garden. There will be no more agony. There's going to be tremendous wealth. The, maid, the women and, and men will rejoice and will dance. Um, mourning, sadness will turn to joy. Um, they, we will be gladdened from our grief um, and we'll recognize that suffering was not in vain. Um, and the point here is that basically all the suffering, all the mourning, um, the grief that we've gone through, we'll realize actually it's because of that grief, it's through that grief that we'll be able to be joyous, that we'll realize in the end of days that that grief served a purpose. Um, then it says that the Kohanim um, will have fat for offerings and the people will be full of my bounty. Um, that basically the Kohanim throughout Jewish history, the Kohanim have been corrupt, have basically used their position of privilege to, um, to, to basically unfairly get money from the rest of the Jewish people. However, it says in the end of days, the Kohanim will be more true to their true purpose of serving God and will receive the fat from offerings sort of the way that it should should have been. Um, and then it says that the voice, um, it, a voice is heard, there's wailing, there's weeping, there's crying. And who is this wailing and weeping voice? It's none other than Rachel Imenu, Rachel, our, our, um, our mother. And she weeps for her children. Um, she refuses to be consoled. She refuses to have Nechama um, for... Um, for her children are gone, and God is not there, for, for he is not there. Um, it's interesting, the Aftorah says, for he is not there, referring to God. So um, the one of the commentaries here says something fascinating, that um, she's crying about two things. There's sort of a double language. She weeps for her children, and she refuses to be consoled for her children. It seems like two things. Not only is she weeping for her children, but she's also refusing to be consoled. What is this? So um, the, what, what, the the commentaries say that it's it's a two stages of grief. Not only does she weep for her children, that her children are physically not in the land of Israel, but the commentaries say even if her children are in the land of Israel, she still is crying because she doesn't recognize them anymore. They're not practicing the mitzvot. They're not, they're not acting and looking like Jewish people, like the Jewish people. 
And so not only is she crying because the Jewish people are dispersed, but even today, even, you know, even though we see there's many, many, many Jews in the land of Israel, nonetheless, she's still crying because those people don't look Jewish, um, aren't acting Jewish. And that's what she's crying about. Uh, she's, it's a two-step. Not only are her children in Galos, in, in exile, but she's also crying because even if they weren't in exile, they would still not, they, they wouldn't be familiar to her because they aren't practicing the mitzvot. Um, and it says that the, uh, another interesting thing, why, why was Rachel chosen? Chazal say it's because King Menashe of the Ten Tribes, when, or sorry, King Menashe of, actually this is uh, the, the king of, of Yehuda. Um, when he he put an idol in the temple, and God was very angry that an idol was put in his holy temple, and Rachel tells God um, that she herself wasn't jealous when um, when Leah married um, when 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 Leah married Yaakov first, um, and and uh, what and and what Rachel basically challenges God is to say. Rachel was originally, of course, going to marry Yaakov, but when her sister Leah was switched at the last second, she wasn't jealous. In fact, the commentaries say she even gave uh, Leah the special codes um, to, to, as to not, insult, you know, the special code uh, that she would speak to, um, that she would speak to Yaakov to verify that it was really her, um, just just to avoid embarrassment. That just so Leah would avoid uh, avoid embarrassment. Um, and so Rachel, even though she had a, a real right um, to be extremely jealous of her sister Leah, nonetheless, she was not at all jealous. And she basically challenges God to say, since I, as a human being, wasn't jealous, so too, God, you shouldn't be jealous. Just because there's an idol in your temple, you shouldn't be jealous. Um, and it was for that reason that God comforted her. And Hashem replies, don't cry, don't weep. Um, there will be reward for your accomplishments. What is this reward? The reward, the commentaries say, is it's a reward for being avas chinam, for, for loving with no reason. She loved Leah, her sister, even though she had reason to hate Leah. Leah married her, Leah married her husband in the, you know, in place of her husband, and she had, in a deceptive way, and she had every right to hate Leah. Nonetheless, she loved her. And for that reason, um, for the for the avas chinam, you know, we, we're in. We still the second temple is destroyed for sinach chinam, for hate, for for senseless hatred, but for senseless love uh, will be the reason that we are redeemed, um, and the the Jewish people will return to the land of Israel. Ephraim complains, "You have chastised me, and um, you bring me. And but if you bring me back to the land of Israel and and to Yiddishkeit, I will return, for you Hashem are my God." And then. Uh, after being aware of, of my sins, this is Ephraim talking, the Ten Lost Tribes, after the Ten Lost Tribes are aware of my sins, um, I've slapped my thigh in shame and humiliation from the disgrace of my youth, that basically Ephraim will, will realize one day um, how it's veered off the path. Then it says, Hashem replies, um, Ephraim is my, is my most dear son. Um, whenever I speak of him, I remember him. And Hashem yearns for the ten tribes and will take pity on the ten tribes. We'll take, uh, we'll have Rachmanus, we'll have pity on the ten tribes in the end of days. Um, so to recap the Haftorah, you know, a note before we get started, it's interesting. The Haftorah we read about is mainly about the ten lost tribes. And the message for Rosh Hashanah is the fact that 
um, you know, we are not only crying over our own return, but we're, we're crying over the collective teshuva, over the collective return of the entire Jewish people, which even includes the ten lost tribes. And that's perhaps why we read this Torah, is because we recognize the Jewish people aren't really completely returned, unless if the entire Jewish people are returning. And um, the entire Jewish people even include those ten lost tribes that split off from the Jewish people at such an early um, so early on in Jewish history. So um, to recap the Aftorah, so Hashem says the Jewish people um, have survived the sword, that's talking about the Egyptian slavery, and have found chen, have found favor in God's eyes when they went into the wilderness um, for really, for you know, against all their rational fears. They had rational fears of going into a desert with no water, no food, no provisions. Nonetheless, they trusted God. And God rewards them by leading Israel to a place of tranquility. Um, Israel says that we're so far, Marachok, we're so distant from Hashem. Um, and, and this is actually talking about in, in the past, not Marachok distance, physical distance, but rather um, distance in time. That And what is this distance in time? It's talking about the Avam. Rashi explains it's talking about Avam, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, that in their schus, in their... Um, in their merit, the Jewish people again and again have been saved. God says, I've loved you, Olam of Otaich, for eternal love. I talked about how Olam actually means world, but here it means uh, for, it means forever. And um, I've extended chesed to you, I've extended kindness to you. I'll rebuild you, um, the maiden of Israel, the, the Betulat Yisrael, the maiden of Israel, I, and you'll adorn yourself with drums, and you'll go on to dance in the times of the Mashiach. And uh, it goes on to say that there will be vineyards that will be planted in the mountains of Shomron, in the mountains of Samaria. And why is that notable? Shomron was the home of the 10 tribes, the 10 lost tribes. And the vineyards will be planted there. Not only that, but the Aftorah says that those vineyards will be redeemed, that Miser um, will be paid, uh, you know, on, on those vineyards. And then it says that the watchmen will call out on Mount Ephraim, arise and let us go up to Zion to Hashem our God. And this is notable because these watchmen were traditionally there to stop the, the people from the, of the 10 tribes uh, from going into, in, into Jerusalem and praying and, uh, and, and, and you know, uh, offering sacrifices uh, during the Shalosh Regalim. However, and, and making sure that those people only worshipped idols. However, in the end of days, in an ironic twist of fate, um, those same watchmen will be there on Mount Ephraim, uh, encouraging the Jews to go, encouraging those 10 lost tribes to go, uh, and return to, to God. Um, now says Hashem, Ranu Yaakov, sing Yaakov with gladness, say, uh, um, Hashem, save your people Israel. Uh, God replies, I will bring them from the north and gather them from the ends of the earth. The north is referring to Bavel. Um, and even from the ends of the earth, even places where there isn't such a strong Jewish tradition, the Jewish people will be gathered in. Um, among them are the blind, the lame, the pregnant, the birthing. I spoke about the blind and the lame here. It's not talking about actually blind and lame. Rather, it's talking about people that are blind uh, to the mitzvot. Then it says that there will be a kaho gadol, a great congregation um, will, will, will return. And then it says that the Jewish people um, will come weeping and through prayer, I'll bring them. It's notable because Rosh Hashanah is a time of prayer. Um, and through prayer, the Jewish people will be redeemed. They'll come on the streams of water, water referring here to the Torah, 
which the Torah, with the Torah mentions, this is a straight path. The Jewish people won't stumble. And it says, I've been a father to Israel. Ephraim is my Bechor, is my firstborn son. Ephraim, even though it seems like Ephraim, the, the leader of the 10 lost tribes, may seem so lost. Nonetheless, God views them as my firstborn son. The other nations will recognize God as the one that scatters his people, but now gathers them in um, like a shepherd gathers his sheep. God redeems Yaakov from the stronger nations and the Jewish people will come and sing in Sion. They'll have bounty, including grain, wine, oil, sheep. Their soul will be like a, a watered garden. There will be no more agony. The maidens and the men will rejoice. Um, mourning will, will turn to joy. Gladdening, um, you know, the, the, the gr- grief will be gladdened. Um, and the point of this is basically suffering will not happen in vain. Um, then it says the Kohanim will have fat of offerings. And I mentioned the Kohanim traditionally um, have been have been corrupt in the past, but in the times of the Mashiach, they won't be corrupt. They'll serve their purpose, um, and the people will be full of bounty. A voice is heard wailing and weeping. Who is this voice? It's none other than Rachel. Um, Rachel, our, 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 our mother, she weeps for her children. She refuses to be consoled. Um, and I mentioned this is kind of double language. Not only does she weep for her children, but she also refuses to be consoled. The commentaries say she not only wants her children to return to the land of Israel, but in addition to that, even if they return to Israel, she wants to see that they're practicing the mitzvot. So that's why she has to be consoled twice. Not only does she want them to be returned to Israel, but she also wants them to follow the mitzvot. Um, then it king and, and why Rachel, why is she the one crying? It's, and, and why is she the one that successfully petitions God? It's because when King Manasseh put an idol in the holy temple, Rachel tells God that God should not be jealous because she herself, Rachel, wasn't jealous when Leah, um, married first. And because Rachel, um, uh, wasn't jealous, so too God shouldn't be jealous um, when, when there was an idol in the temple, Hashem replies, don't weep, don't cry. There's a reward for your accomplishment. What is her accomplishment? The commentaries say it's for avas chinam. It's for, it's for senseless love. She loved Leah, even though she had no reason to love Leah. In fact, she had reason to hate Leah for taking her place. Nonetheless, she loved Leah and, and that's, and through that accomplishment of loving Leah, even though she had reason to hate her, the Jewish people will be redeemed. Um, um, you know, we're, we're in exile for, for sinat chinam, for senseless hatred. However, in the end, we'll be redeemed for senseless love. Um, and the Jewish people will, re- will return to the land of Israel. Ephraim says that, you know, you've chastised me, but um, if you bring me back, I will return um, for you, Hashem, are my God. After being aware of my sins, I slap my thigh in shame and humiliation. This is talking about the 10 lost tribes. And um, I feel the disgrace from my youth. And God comforts Ephraim, the ten lost tribes, by saying, You're my favorite son. You're my most dear son. Whenever I speak of you, I remember you. Hashem yearns for the ten tribes and will take pity on them when they come back. To read my poem, the ten lost tribes may seem forlorn, but in reality, Ephraim is Hashem's firstborn. For her missing children, Rachel cries, but when the Jews return, she'll dry her eyes. And with that, Lachaim, Lachaim. And this has been the whole half Torah.